Um, the best way to carve a spoon correctly is to have a metal spoon in your hand and look at it really hard. Mm. Um, so if you've forgotten your spoon, you're, you're kind of uh, uh, SOL. Um, but uh, the, the best thing to do is to pick up, maybe while you're listening to the podcast, pick up a spoon and actually look at it. Um, it's hard to really see things that we use every day and have been using every day since before we were talking. Um, but if you actually take out a spoon and you look at it, you'll see that there's what's called crank or recurve in that spoon. There's the bowl of the spoon, hold that level to the floor. And as, as you hold the bowl of the spoon level to the floor, you'll see that the, the handle goes up and then kind of back. There's generally some kind of swoop or recurve that happens there. Yep. And that means it's possible for you to shovel food into your mouth without the food falling off the spoon every time you're, you're going for it. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. All right, buddy. How would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Tom Bonamici. I grew up in Eugene, Oregon. That's always the way I want to introduce myself. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I'm not from California. I'm moving to Eugene, Oregon, but I uh-huh. grew up here. Um, and I spent a bunch of time on the East Coast going to college and grad school and working um, and then ended up moving back to Oregon in 2015. Um, and I do product design. That's my main thing. Studied architecture and product design in school. Um, and have done all manner of product design. Um, I've run a small company producing bags and clothing. Um, Then I've worked for other people producing bags and clothing. I've also done a lot of custom woodworking. Um, That's everything from timber frame construction, small timber frame buildings, um, which with all wood joinery to uh, smaller stuff like chairs and stools and couches and that kind of thing. And the timber framing you do is influenced by Japanese timber framing. Yeah, and that was total happenstance. I met this guy in the woods in Vermont, um, who's a super kooky dude, uh, who really knew his stuff, um, and and uh, was a very interesting character. Um, and he just happened to be following the Japanese, generally the Japanese tradition, with some some other influences. Um, I needed to build some buildings for the outing club of the college I was going to, and. Um, he volunteered to help me out and it just happened to be Japanese. Um, and I, I ended up sticking with it because I, I like that approach towards timber and joinery. Um, and it's just a fascinating, um, the whole fascinating cultural avenue. What is timber framing? 
Timber framing is, um, when you think about a barn on the East Coast um, or, or something like that, you think about a structure that instead of being made of a bunch of two by fours, it's made of bigger timbers, six by sixes, eight by eights, um, very large section timbers that are joined together, not with metal fasteners, but with wooden joinery, um, mortise and tenon, scarf joints, knee braces, that kind of thing. Okay. And every culture that has a forest has timber frames. Um, we think about indigenous peoples out here in the Northwest, um, all up and down the coast, they were splitting um, with wooden and stone tools, Western red cedar mostly to make incredible timber frame buildings. Um, same in Japan and Korea and China, Indonesia, Thailand, um, and of course, all over Europe, um, Eastern Europe, up into Scandinavia, and all the way down into France. Um, you run out of timber frames when you run out of trees. Interesting. So, you know, it's, it's based on the availability of the natural material. It also doesn't require a huge number of tools to be able to do um, compared with, with some other types of construction. Sure. Um, yeah, one of the coolest things is that you really just need a saw, a chisel, and a hammer, um, and the saws are pretty new on the scene. Um, oftentimes, people could make an entire timber frame with just an axe um, or a, a chisel. Um, some of those axes got pretty specialized. Uh, when you look at like Viking timber framing, which was kind of hybrid log building and timber framing, um, you know, they'd have a half dozen different kinds of axes. But the idea is that it's just a chisel on a stick, um, so it can get the job done pretty efficiently. Saws didn't become very common until steel got good. Um, that depends on where you are. In Japan, steel got really good in the 1500s, really the 1600s. Um, before then, you'd just be using chisels for everything. Um, and you, you can do it. It's not easy, but you can do it. <laughs> Takes a, a lot of swings with a hammer to make it happen. Oh my God. Yeah, the, the Japanese traditionally also, now of course they have an incredible assortment of power tools to cut mortises, which is like a square hole cut in, a, in the, these thick timbers. Um, but traditionally, you know, they didn't have drills. Um, they didn't really get down on inventing auger drills, which is what the U Europeans used, which are effective, but slow. The Japanese had such good steel that they would just chisel out their holes without bothering to drill out uh, all that wood first. Um, and because they had really good steel and a lot of practice and a really strong apprenticeship program, um, those, uh, those mortises got banged out really fast. Um, but the guy that taught me had me learn by banging out a bunch of mortises with no drills, just chiseling. And I can tell you, I've never had more blisters on my hands in my life. It was just punishing. Um, so I'm thankful for, for some modern timber framing tools. There's, um, the, the best is the mortising machine, which is like a short, thick, stubby chainsaw on a stand and you clamp it to the timber and you can do these um, successive plunge cuts and be able to cut a square sided mortise. It's lovely. So why wouldn't everybody timber frame? Why is, why is, you know, stud frame construction still a thing? Stud frame construction is honestly, it's a lot better in a lot of ways um, because you can end up with a really well insulated building that can accommodate systems like electrical and plumbing much more easily than a timber frame. Um, a timber frame is absolutely more durable than stud framing. Um, there are timber frames in Japan that are over a thousand years old and still standing through all the earthquakes of the Pacific Rim. Um, they're, they're truly amazing buildings and they can last for forever as long as the wood's kept dry. Um, but where it's harder is, um, and gen it's not really harder, it's just more expensive. You have to insulate the walls somehow, um, which historically hasn't been a big thing, right? Um, we relied on different ways of cladding buildings and also just generally being colder humans. 
Um, but because we want our environments to be a perfect 65 degrees all the time, we insulate our walls and then we throw in all these systems, electrical and plumbing. Just means you've got to build another wall on top of the timber frame. So you end up stud frame, you know, wrapping a timber frame in stud frame construction. Um, so you're just spending a ton of money and spending a lot of time, which is very expensive, um, to end up with a really amazing building. Um, so it's just priced out. Tell me about the wedges um, and, and how that fits into the mix, especially in terms of earthquakes. Sure. Um, this is, I'm glad you remembered that story. So the, uh, in the European model, um, you're using mortise and tenon joints, and then you're pegging everything together. So you drill a hole. Again, they had bits before um, Eastern timber framers had, had drill bits. Drill a hole and you bang in a, a peg. And that peg is usually out of split oak or some kind of wood where the, um, the wood is super, super strong and also flexible. There are ways of putting those pegs in so that they actually join the, the mortise and tendon together even tighter. You intentionally offset the holes a little bit. The peg actually bends as you're banging it in there and it just sucks the whole joint together. Um, it's a very European approach because it's like it's going to be done and it's permanent and it's never going to fail and it's going to be perfect forever. Um, this is this is never the case. Buildings always get screwed up and they need maintenance. So um, down, if you back the truck into that barn, um, or if there's an earthquake, for instance, there's a chance that that whole structure can rack like a parallelogram and break that joint where the peg goes through. So in most Eastern timber framing traditions, um, and not not all, I'm not you know I'm I'm not of Asian descent, and I'm 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 not a, a real expert, but um, basically everywhere that I've seen it in the books available, um, all the joints are wedged together instead of being pegged together. So you've got an oversized mortise, an undersized tenon, or a, a member that passes through that mortise entirely, um, and then wedges that hold those pieces in place. So it's nice for a lot of reasons. When you assemble the building, you can get that building, you put all the pieces up and you throw all the joints together um, and it's kind of loose. And then you can use some cam straps or whatever you've got around to kind of gradually bring that thing super plumb and level. Um, and then you bang your wedges in. And then when you back the truck into the barn or the earthquake comes along or both at the same time, um, the whole building just kind of racks again like a parallelogram and can fart those wedges right out. And then you come back and you, get your cam straps out and you straighten the building up and you bang the wedges back in. Um, so it's a really maintainable and really, uh, really um, kind of long vision way of looking at wooden joinery. The reason that I remember this is because when you were teaching the timber framing class up here in Joseph, I stopped by and there was this gigantic hammer <laughs> laying there and I started to go for it and you stopped me because you knew exactly what was going to happen next. I was going to hammer something that I had no business hammering. Nope. Um, but it's, it's exciting. Building timber frame is really cool. And, and it's something that a community can do. Um, you're using big pieces of wood and the, the structures do look really beautiful. Yeah, they're incredible. It's incredible technology and it still is relevant. I think that if you're a, you're a young family and you don't have any money and you're just trying to get up a, a living situation for yourself, I'd probably stud frame. Um, I definitely would. Um, but if you need to build something like a sauna or an outbuilding or a barn or a machine shed, um, or you have a lot of money and you want to build yourself a really great house that's not going to last 80 to 100 years, but that could last 500 years, um, build yourself a timber frame. Um, it's a it's a hard argument to make because you're not investing in your generation because the house is going to work the same if it's a stud frame or a timber frame for your whole lifespan, no question. 
Um, but when you build a really good quality timber frame um, with nice big roof overhangs, good foundation, um, you're investing in three generations, four generations, five generations from now. Um, and I think that's a really beautiful gesture. Yeah, it is super cool. And and by the way, this is not at all the topic of this podcast, but <laughs> it's fun to talk about. You know, I get ex- I get excited. Um, giant hammer, big pieces of wood, making stuff out of it. It's fun. It's cool. Super satisfying. It's also, well, and you're a bandsaw mill owner, right? So that's, yeah. the, that's the whole next level. If you want to level up on timber framing, this is how I learned in Vermont. You know, Jay said, build yourself, uh, um, you know, you want to learn how to timber frame, build a wing on my house. So I built a wing on his house. Every time I needed a timber, I would get on the tractor, drive into the woods, cut down a tree, throw it on the forks, throw it on the bandsaw mill, mill out the timber. Um, and you can work with dead green timbers because the um, just the way the wood shrinks, it's not a problem. Um, the, the joints are all adjustable. Um, and especially with the wedge model, if anything shrinks a little bit, you just tighten up the wedges. I um, love yeah, that. It really didn't matter for his house because he never finished building it. But, you know, when some yeah. was done. Sure. Okay. So I think we've, we've established at this point that you're a pretty handy guy. Like you can take some tools, you can make some stuff. You've got a bunch of experience and you're also a hunter besides hunting. You spend a lot of time outside. You like to hike, you like to motorcycle. Um, you're a man's man. So if I'm out in hunting camp and I've got a couple knives with me, what are some things that I can whittle that will actually be useful? So the thing that I've whittled the most in the backcountry um, is chopsticks because my dumb ass has forgotten a spoon. Okay. Um, you didn't expect me to say that one because we didn't talk talk about it beforehand. But I was I was just realizing that is what I've whittled the most. Huh. You know, it's like you get to camp, you unpack, and you realize the spoons in the other cook set, the fork sure. in the other cook set. Yeah. Um, and then you just find a straight twig and you start cleaning up the ends just to kind of taking the bark off. And you like shovel the ramen into your mouth one way or another. Um, and uh, that that happened on a hiking trip I was on in the Olympics last weekend. A buddy forgot his spoon and he made some really terrible chopsticks and ended up using his mug lid to, to shovel oatmeal in. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's not glorious, but it's a, it's a good start. Um, so that's the real necessity. Um, but other things that you can whittle and maybe have more fun with it because you can do it with uh, intentionality. Um, so we, uh, you can do tent stakes and that's a good one. And if anyone's setting up a wall tent, you're always working with wood or often working with wood, um, especially if you're running poles instead of uh, you know, like wooden poles instead of a metal frame. Um, and tent stakes are great because they are so easy to make and they're just always useful. Um, a nice thing about a tent stake is to use a really hard wood species and to have that wood be dead dry um, when you're trying to pound it into the ground. Um, but that's really optional. You know, uh, woodworkers will often try to optimize every single aspect of a project because like me, they like to nerd out about the details of the wood species and like functional attributes of your tent stake project or whatever. Um, but you don't really need to. If you're out there and you need tent stakes, um, it's really not a problem. You can just bang out some tent stakes. Yeah, that we've picked out a piece of good, hard, dry wood. What happens next? So if you're out in the bush and you want to make tent stakes, I actually wouldn't sweat about the, the dry aspect. I would just start with um, what kind of wood is it? If it's a conifer, then it's probably a softwood. I mean, it's by definition a softwood. Um, and there are harder soft softwoods and, and softer softwoods, but I wouldn't sweat it. If it's a conifer, um, use something that's a little bit bigger in diameter. And I would say about an eh, inch and a half in diameter. 
And if it's a hardwood, as, as in a deciduous tree, you could use something a little smaller, maybe an inch in diameter. And I would find a little sapling or a branch and get out a little saw, and I can talk about tools at another time, um, get out a little saw and zip off a section of, uh, just cut down the sapling um, or zip off a branch. And um, then you've got a, a nice uh, dowel, basically, you know, and treat that as the, th the stock out of which you're going to cut your tent stakes. Um, usually when people make a tent stake, they make them too short. Um, you need a lot of meat in there. As anyone who's ever put up a fence knows, um, you need enough uh, post for the hole as well as post for the, the critters you're keeping in. Um, so I like, uh, I mean, if you're going to set up a wall tent, you're going to be wrenching on the guy lines. So I would probably say at least 12 inches that's going to go into the ground. Um, again, it depends on the ground you got, but, you know, hopefully you're getting in at least that much. And you don't need that much above ground. A really long tent stake above ground is just more stuff to trip on. Um, so you only really need about six, eight inches above the ground. So that means that you've got a total length, maybe 20 inches or so. And that's going to be about the length from your middle finger to your elbow. So I would use that as your, uh, your length guide um, and cut off as many tent stakes as you need from whatever tree or branch you're using. The straighter, the better. That's going to transition force the best when you start smacking the thing. Um, then ideally, you can find a stump. Um, a stump is a really good working surface. Then with your hatchet, you should always have a hatchet, as you showed me when you showed me taking apart an elk in about two seconds, because I barely <laughs> learned how to do it because you did it so fast. Um, but the hatchet's such a good way of doing that, and of course, super useful for working on wood. Um, put the end of that, uh, that branch that you're working on on the stump, right on the stump, kind of holding it up vertically near your face. Lean over and use that hatchet and sharpen it like a pencil. Um, the other common mistake with tent stakes, too short and then too, um, too fine, I'm sorry, too blunt of a point. Okay. Um, that you get a really sharp end, but then it transitions from that pointed end to the, to the walls of the stake too fast, right? Um, if you think about a pencil for this tent stake, you want it to be really long as it transitions from the pointed end to the full section of the tent stake. Um, and that's going to allow it to drive into the dirt way better. Um, if it's got to work its way around rocks or whatever, um, you, you want it to be really long and pointy as opposed to kind of pointy, but, but blunt. Um, so take your time and take long strokes with the hatchet um, and just spin it around in your left hand if you're, if you're right-handed and use that right hand to um, gradually make those cuts. Um, you'll start near, near the end and then work your way up. And before you know it, you'll have a nice pointed tent stake. Um, then if you're driving that stake at an angle, um, you really don't need much of a notch. So all I would do for the notch for the rope is to make a single cut with the, the handsaw to about a third of the depth, very near the top, uh, maybe two inches down from the top of the stake, um, and then flip it upside down, use the hatchet to gradually sneak up on that cut, and then you'll have a nice little notch in the top of the stake that'll hold the, hold the rope in place. Easy enough. So Easy. find the right wood, right diameter, make sure it's straight, make sure it's sharp, pound it in the ground, and then your tent doesn't blow away. That's the idea. Okay. All right. So we've got chopsticks. Um, not everybody can use chopsticks though. There's a, there's a barrier to entry with that. Uh, so let's just say we forgot our, you know, $19 titanium spoon spork at home. All right. Um, never seen me do that before ever. <laughs> so I've tried to carve spoons in the backcountry before a bunch of times and inevitably it ends up with like 
just kind of a, a it's more of like a baby spatula than a spoon. Yep. Um, so I, I know now that I've been doing things wrong. How do you carve a spoon correctly? Um, the best way to carve a spoon correctly is to have a metal spoon in your hand and look at it really hard. Mm. Um, so if you've forgotten your spoon, you're, you're kind of, uh, uh, SOL. Um, but, uh, the, the best thing to do is to pick up, maybe while you're listening to the podcast, pick up a spoon and actually look at it. Um, it's hard to really see things that we use every day and have been using every day since before we were talking. Um, but if you actually take out a spoon and you look at it, you'll see that there's what's called crank or recurve in that spoon. There's the bowl of the spoon, hold that level to the floor. And as, as you hold the bowl of the spoon level to the floor, you'll see that the, the handle goes up and then kind of back. There's generally some kind of swoop or recurve that happens there. Yep. And that means it's possible for you to shovel food into your mouth without the food falling off the spoon every time you're, you're going for it. Um, usually when people try to carve a spoon without looking at a spoon first, they end up making a club, you know, and it's just like a, this bowl on a stick. It works, but basically everyone who makes spoons, there's some kind of angle change. Um, so indigenous people in the Northwest would usually use mussel shells. Um, and because of that dish, then you split a twig and you put it on the end and lash that in place, you end up with this natural kind of crank between handle and bowl of spoon. So it's, it, it's just a universal feature of spoons that makes them less crappy to work with. So that's a great power play. If you're, if you're near a stream that has some type of shell, use that, you know, you don't have to carve this thing out of wood. That would be incredible. And it's, it's going to um, give you a nice little shellfish flavor, you know, with that fresh muscle juice mm -hmm. still hanging out in there. You bet. But if you are, are uh, too far from any shellfish um, and you've got a, uh, I'm allergic to shellfish. So the idea is really off putting. Uh, <laughs> If, uh, you know, if you're allergic to shellfish or you're too far away from the mussels um, and you, you're stuck with wood, that's fine. It's all good. Um, so again, look at a spoon. That's very helpful. Uh, but if you just need function, um, there are two things that you've got to do. The first is to split the wood so that the center of the branch or the center of the tree is not involved. Um, the, the very dead center of a tree, whether it's six feet in diameter or an inch in diameter, that's called the pith. And as wood shrinks, it's always going to split from the outside to that pith. And that's just because of how wood shrinks. Um, it can't shrink super evenly. It, uh, it loses a lot of moisture out of the end grain. Um, and it's always going to split, always, always. So the pith cannot be in the spoon or else your spoon's going to split. Um, so that's important. The other important thing is that you need a hook knife or you need a gouge um, because otherwise you're going to have a flat surfaced thing. Um, with, a, with a normal pocket knife of any kind, you just can't really carve a good spoon. Um, so uh, we should do a whole tools thing in a second. So let's okay. uh, let's start by talking about the spoon. Sure. Um, the fastest way to carve a spoon is with a hatchet. There are some great YouTube videos. Um, my favorites are, there's this one um, that's, it's, uh, it's a silent movie from Sweden from the twenties. Um, <laughs> there's, there's this guy making a set of wooden clogs, which just look horrifically uncomfortable. Um, and at the end, there are these guys making wooden chairs, which also look horrifically uncomfortable, but in the middle, there's this guy whacking out a wooden spoon. Um, and you know, it's, it's old timey. So it kind of looks like it's going faster, but even so it looks like he carves the spoon in about 40 seconds. Um, and he does almost the whole thing with the axe. 
And it is incredible to watch him work. It's, it's worth looking up um, just for giggles, but um, it is incredible to watch him work because he gets so close to the line with the axe. Um, and that's the hint that good spoon carvers will pass along is that you do as much work with the axe as possible. Um, you, you switch to the knife right away and you're just gonna be whittling forever. Now, if you need to pass a lot of time at the hunting camp around the fire, then that's great. Um, you, should, you should just whittle forever. But uh, if you actually want the spoon, get the ax out and get it as close to spoon shaped with the ax as possible. Um, for order of operations, it's a little hard on audio, um, but the, the general idea is that you're gonna take a, a billet of wood um, and that's just like a, a short chunk of firewood um, that is the length that you want your finished spoon. So with your saw, you're gonna to go to um, some kind of wood. We'll talk about species in a second, but some kind of wood, you're gonna cut that to um, the length of your finished spoon. If you're making an eating spoon, that only needs to be six, seven inches long. Um, so cut it to that length, split it like a piece of firewood. Let's say you're starting with something that's six, eight inches in diameter. So split it in half, then split it into quarters. And from those quarters, triangular, you know, with a semicircular quarter circle um, outside, um, hew the pointy tip, like the tip of the piece of pizza, so that it's flat. And get out a Sharpie or uh, uh, stick a charcoal from the fire and draw something vaguely spoon-shaped um, on that flat surface that you have. As soon as you have that, start cutting to that shape. You're thinking about kind of just cutting two walls. You know, ideally, we think in boxes because we live in boxes. It's very helpful to think about like what's the box the spoon came in, right? Okay. Um, so you can hew to that. Um, uh, you've got that flat surface um, that you've drawn on. Now, perpendicular to that, hew out that profile of the spoon. Then you've got like an extrusion of spoon, right? Um, so then flip the spoon 90 degrees, get out your Sharpie again, draw the, the side profile. And that's the one that's going to have a little crank to it, a little angle difference between handle yep. and bowl and do the same thing, just hew away. And then you should have something that's pretty spoon shaped. Um, it's not gonna be perfect. It's gonna have some funky ax marks. It doesn't have a hollow bowl yet, but it's close enough. Once you've got that, then you need the hook knife. Um, and the hook knife is a Swedish tool um, that is super cheap. Mora um, make really good and cheap ones. Um, they're made in Sweden, incredible quality, hold an edge forever, and they're about 30 bucks. Um, you can get those from Light My Fire um, in the U.S. They're a distributor for a bunch of a bunch of different outdoor gear. Um, you can get them on Amazon. You can get them wherever. Um, with that hook knife, um, that's the best way to cut yourself while you're carving, carving a spoon. So just go real slow. Cradle the spoon in your non-dominant hand, the bowl of the spoon, and then use really small motions with your wrist to slowly chip out um, shavings across the grain in the bowl of the spoon. It's just, it seems like it's gonna take forever, but surprisingly, it doesn't take as long as you think. Just slow little chips and you'll, you'll dig away the bowl of the spoon. The, the first time I carved a spoon with a, with a hook knife in camp, I made a ladle because I was yeah. so excited about having the power to actually you know, make this thing concave that uh, I went too deep. You don't have to go as, as, as deep as what some people might think. So again, if you've got the, the luxury of being able to look at a metal spoon before you carve a wood spoon, put a straight edge across the bowl and you'll see that the bowl of a spoon is maybe a quarter inch deep, three eighths deep. Um, there's not a lot of depth there. If you want to make a ladle or a cooking spoon or like a deep ass soup spoon, uh, <laughs> go for it. 
but you've got to think about the, the ergonomics of the spoon. The idea is that you're using your top lip to scrape the food out of the bowl. Um, it's, it's not a very appealing way of thinking about it, but that's what you're doing. You're like home scraping the food out of the bowl. <laughs> your, top and your top lip is kind of flat, right? Um, we've got these little like, you know, uh, muscles that barely get in there and, and scrape the food. You just don't make it too deep or else you're just kind of grazing the surface every time you're leaving this like sad portion of food left in the bowl of the spoon. Not a good look. So yeah, you can make it really shallow. It's kind of surprisingly shallow. Um, a spoon is is part spatula and part, part vessel, um, but I'd say it's more spatula than vessel. Yeah. Um, once you've got that bowl carved out and you haven't cut yourself so that you're bleeding out, um, then you just take your knife, the sharper the better, and finish the outside. Just try to trim it up. Um, what you're shooting for is a really even thickness in the bowl of the spoon and a nice even thickness in the handle. Um, generally, there's a taper uh, of some kind in the handle so that it's a little taller as it connects to the um, bowl, and that can provide some strength, and a little wider near the end because that sits in your hand a little better. Um, that's the Swedish style, and that's usually the kind of spoon that I carve. Works well for me. Um, but there are all kinds of other styles. It's a it's a really deep world. There are forums out there. Um, I don't participate in those because I just can't really handle it. Um, but uh, there there are a million ways to carve a spoon, and they're pretty much all fun. Even just carving a club that is totally unusable is fun. Yeah. No, I mean, whittling is a great thing to do, and it's something that a lot of people find themselves doing. But, you know, if you're going to be doing it, you could either just make a stick into a bunch of small pieces of wood, or you could make it into something that you can use. Oh yeah. Um, and if you do it right, you can use it season after season. You can also whittle um, things that are useful that you um, only use once. Um, one thing that I like to do if I'm sitting around and there's dry dead, um, especially conifer wood, but really anything, um, I'll break off branches that are maybe an inch in diameter and then carve little fire starters. Um, all you do is, and I, can't, I think there's a, a name for these, but again, I, I don't know all the, all the names. Um, cut something maybe eight inches long out of one inch diameter branch, and then uh, whittle on it, but don't, don't um, release the, the chip when you're whittling. And you start getting all these curly bits coming off the side. And you make the whole thing curly all the way around, so it kind of looks like a little toy Christmas tree or something. Um, and then throw it in the firewood bag. You've got this amazing little fire starter. Um, That's really called feathering, right? Feathering, sure, yeah. I'll take it. Yeah. Um, I, I had no idea. I, I think, um, I think that's that, what it's called. I, I believe it. Um, <laughs> that is a way to keep your hands occupied if your hands tend to um, keep want to keep busy while you're talking and shooting the breeze. Okay, so let, let's do one more. One more thing that we can carve that's useful in camp. Um, in camp, so... I've always wanted to carve a gambrel, um, and I haven't done this yet. So full disclosure, um, I've uh, I've made some really improvised gambrels. Uh, what what is a gambrel to start with? Yeah, gambrel is a basically a stick um, that is going to hang on to the Achilles tendon of whatever animal has just died. Um, that allows you to hoist that animal up and clean it more effectively, and certainly skin it a lot more effectively. Um, so uh, this is um, something that I've rigged up before, uh, helping a friend with pigs that we were killing in Pennsylvania. Um, and I've seen a lot of gambrels that people welded up out of rebar, and I think that's fantastic, and you're never going to go wrong. Um, but I'm just intrigued by a wooden gambrel. Um, I saw in a book called The Hard Life by a designer called Jasper Morrison, 
um, he was going through this cultural history museum in Portugal and there were these beautiful wooden gambrels that people were using for their hogs, um, you know, 200 years ago with this gorgeous curve and a nice little notch, kind of like the notch on the end of the tent stake um, that allows you to slide that thing into some Achilles tendons and then hoist an animal out. Um, and with the number of, uh, you know, poles that are lashed to trees that I see out in the woods for people's elk camps, um, I figure a gambrel could be a really satisfying thing to carve. And when I do that, um, I'm going to take the same approach as a spoon. Um, take some kind of wood, split it. Um, and again, when you split um, wood, the, the grain is continuous and it makes it way stronger than sawing it. Um, I'd split it to a board that kind of looks like a two by four, um, trace whatever outline is on there, and then use the ax to get to that outline and the knife to finish it. Um, but I think that that could be a really satisfying thing to improvise. And when you're improvising, or repairing something, it's really satisfying to, um, to, to do it well and to do it with a little intentionality. Um, we all need, we all run into situations where we forgot the spoon, we forgot the gambrel, we forgot the tent stake, whatever, um, the, the spoon, uh, therefore the chopsticks, right? Um, but it's nice to take a little time and say, okay, I don't have this thing, but instead of making something really junky, that's gonna work, but gonna piss me off every time I use it, um, I'm gonna take a little extra time and fix it right and make a, a good replacement for that thing. Okay, so we have our gambrel, right? So we're, we've got something that can both spread and hold um, both Achilles of, uh, of say the elk that we have. And we're in camp, right? We've still got a little bit of time on our hands or, or maybe we did this before we shot the elk, ideally. What about pulleys? Is that something that you could make? I think it's possible. Um, you could make a really effective pulley without a lot of uh, a lot of hassle um, because uh, even if something isn't perfectly round, it's going to allow you to um, to pull a rope over it uh, without any trouble at all. As long as it's rotating, you get the pulley effect. Um, of course, there are really nice pulleys out there. You know, I've got them for search and rescue stuff that have the sealed bearings and, and so on. I was working in the Redwoods last summer and we had to haul all of our gear and tools up um, 150 feet into the trees. And they had these amazing pulleys with cam locks and everything, it was just incredible. Um, but if you got to rig something up, I think it's doable. Um, I think that it would be easiest to do it if you do have a little plywood kicking around or something like that that can form the walls of the pulley. Um, that would really be ideal. And oftentimes, you know, if you're in a, in a big kind of permanent camp situation, you can improvise, you know, some, some boards, some thinner boards or some three quarter inch ply or something. That'd be real nice. And then all I would do is take a section, um, again, just cut, cut a section of a tree that seems pretty round. Um, that's maybe four, five, six inches in diameter. And now you're going to intentionally use the pith. This thing isn't going to get enough use that it's, you'll still be using it when it dries out. So we're gonna ignore how it's always gonna to crack to the pith when it dries because we're gonna be using it pretty soon. Um, you've gotta find a way to drill through the center. And one way, if you don't have a drill around, I know a lot of guys take drills to the woods because you're gonna hang up your, uh, your crossbar on which you're gonna hang your game. Um, and people throw timber locks into trees and I, I see that and that's great. Um, if you don't have a drill with you though, a cool way to make a hole in a, a piece of wood is to burn that hole through. That's actually a way that people um, will burn out this, the bowls of their spoons sometimes. Um, I've never seen that go particularly well, but burning a hole works great. Um, so all you need is a, a stick of rebar or something, um, some kind of metal stake, maybe even a tent stake if you have those and you didn't have to whittle them. Um, stick them in the fire or over your camp stove. 
until it's red hot and then stick it right in the middle of that little chunk that we're going to be using as our pulley wheel and let it burn out. It's going to make a ton of smoke and, and be all dramatic. And then the steak's going to get cold or your rebar is going to get cold, put it back in the fire and just keep repeating that. You will be shocked at how fast you get through the center of that thing. At that point, you just need to make a hole in the sides of whatever this, uh, this rig is, run the rebar that you have or that 10 steak right through, and that's going to be an improvised pulley. Um, with a little bit more head scratching, I think you could find a way to rig that up to some crossbar or branch and allow you to hoist that animal up with way more ease than trying to drag, fight the friction of the rope going over. Sure. And even if you didn't have that rebar, um, you could use a bow and drill in the same way that you would use to, to start a fire. And with enough time and, and friction, you're, you can use a piece of wood to drill through another piece of wood. Absolutely. Yeah, with yep. the right species. Yeah. Um, so maybe we should talk about species of wood for a minute. Yeah, let's do. So for for a lot of these things, you know, the species, again, like woodworkers will go so deep um, in into exactly the right species. Um, in America, we've usually used fruit woods for pulleys, for instance, because fruit woods grow really densely and then they wear really smoothly. Mm. Um, so you go back into, um, you know, on the East Coast, especially in industrial antique kind of things, um, all the pulley wheels themselves are applewood and they're just beautiful. Applewood takes this gorgeous polish, makes a hell of a nice spoon too, um, takes this gorgeous polish. So after being used in a factory or on a boat or something for, for 50 years, these things are just glowing, just absolutely beautiful. Um, so applewood makes a good pulley because it's really dense and the, the density or specific gravity of wood is what gives it its, its particular attributes. That's a, a really big part of it. Um, so like lignum vitae is one of the hardest and densest woods in the world. It's a tropical wood. Um, and it actually does, it's so dense that it doesn't float in water, it just drops like a stone. Um, but if you can machine it, you really have to machine it into some kind of part for a tool. Um, it can be used as like a bushing, um, you know, basically like a bearing um, because it's so hard wearing and so oily and will just last forever. Um, whereas balsa wood is one of the lightest and featheriest woods around. Um, that, of course, floats. Everyone knows, you know, Contiki was a, a, a raft made out of balsa trees. Um, and it's so lightweight that unless you're really making a raft out of these really big pieces, anything small is just going to break almost immediately. You know, I wouldn't want to use chopsticks made out of balsa wood because it's just going to break. And yet it's still a hardwood. Yet it's still a hardwood because it's not a conifer. Um, yep. That, that hardwood-softwood uh, distinction is, is useful, but it's definitely not uh, particularly nuanced, you know. Um, poplar is a very soft deciduous tree. Um, it's softer than say Douglas fir um, effectively, um, but it's a hardwood and Douglas fir is a softwood. You know? Douglas yep. fir is pretty hard and heavy, southern yellow pine too. Um, there's a, a lot of distinction between the early wood and late wood. Those are the, the actual growth stripes on the tree. Um, but uh, that uh, late wood on Doug fir is so hard that it makes the wood very strong, very durable, and actually pretty hard to whittle and cut through. And if you're at, if you're hunting at a higher elevation or more northern latitude, those trees are going to grow more slowly. And even if it's a softwood species, it's going to be harder than the same species growing in a warmer climate, lower latitude, lower elevation. Exactly. Um, yeah, I was just doing construction today. We pulled a stud out that just felt like a feather. And I realized that everything else was dug fur. This one stud was grand fur, which is much lighter in general um, and less distinction between early and late. 
Um, and then I looked at the end grain and the growth lines were maybe a half inch apart. I mean, this tree was growing so fast hmm. um, and it just made it super feathery and lightweight. Um, when trees are adding girth, um, they're doing the most growth early in the season. Um, and if they've got a ton of water, a ton of light, and a ton of space, um, they're going to add that wood really, really fast. Gotcha. Okay. So what are some other good woods to say carve a spoon out of? Well, the, the most popular um, wood for carving spoons in Scandinavia, which is also available in a lot of the U.S., is birch. Um, birch is super easy to carve. It's a, very, it's a relatively soft hardwood, um, and especially when it's green. You, you always want to carve a spoon when the wood is still wet or green and fresh um, because it's the difference between cutting through a grape and cutting through a raisin, right? All those wood cells, if they're all full of water, they're just way easier to slice through with a sharp knife. Um, so birch is really easy to carve, but then once it does dry out, it dries pretty hard and will last a good long time. So if you're hunting whitetail in Minnesota, you've got, you look anywhere and there's a million birch that you can use for carving spoons. Anything that we talked about would be great out of birch. It's a really useful species. Um, but birch ultimately isn't super strong in a, in a lateral sense, um, way less strong than even like Doug fir, for instance, um, or, or pretty much any other hardwood. Um, so you'll, you'll see that in, um, in Finland, the traditional axes have this collar that extends down. So the eye of the axe is actually, you know, effectively much longer than most. And that's because the only hardwood they had was birch. That's what they had. So they needed to make a much longer joint in order for their axe handles not to break all the time. Gotcha. That makes um, sense. Some people out West will try carving out of mountain mahogany. Um, the tough part about that is that um, because it's such a gnarled species, you end up with little knots all over the place. Um, and knots are a real pain in the ass when you're carving. Um, the, the grain of the wood is swirling around that knot and creating this, um, this kind of like upset area where every time you carve, you're going to dig into the grain and then you'll try from the other direction and it'll dig in. You'll try from the other direction and it'll dig in. It'll just be a real pain in the ass. The straighter the grain, the easier the carving. Gotcha. Makes sense. Okay. Well, besides all the woodworking stuff, you also have this background that you alluded to earlier in textiles and all types of textiles. And that's something that we commonly need to repair in the backcountry. So talk me through some of the repairs that you can do and some good ways to go about doing it. Yeah. A good way to think about repairing anything is to kind of like looking at the spoon before you carve a spoon, look at your gear before it breaks and try to anticipate what is going to break. Um, that's, it's maybe easier said than done. Um, but one good way to do that, if you're not really familiar with soft goods, um, is to look at where points. So get out your hunting pack and look at where the holes are, get out your hunting pack and look at what, what straps are a little worn through, um, what buckles have broken in the past, or when you throw the pack down, what buckles make a noise every time it hits the rock. That means that that's an element that's going to be more prone to breaking when you're out there. If you are better prepared by looking at what might break, then you can prepare yourself properly by bringing the tools that you might need to fix that thing. So, yeah, I don't want to get away from the tools thing. Let's talk about tools before we get into repairs. Otherwise, I'll forget. Oh, for uh, for woodworking? Yeah, like what what's our toolkit look like that we're bringing with us so that we can just absolutely wow our friends by our amazing abilities to create stuff? So um, if you're a hard ass dude and you have a little bit of ex experience, you can make anything with a decent saw, a decent ax, a decent carving knife and a hook knife. 
You got those, you can, you can make your entire world. Um, and I'm sure that it's been referenced on your show and many others, but Alone in the Wilderness with Dick Prenicky, um, that is just the most incredible story. Um, with those tools plus an axe, uh, a large axe and a, a couple augers, he builds his log cabin, he makes the hinges for his door, he makes the door itself, he makes the lock for the door. Um, it's just super inspiring. So if you've got a, a hatchet, a saw, a carving knife, and a hook knife, you're good to go. Um, and I can give recommendations um, because the, the kind of tools that you have make a big difference. I want to hear it. For a saw, I love silky saws. They're Japanese, they're folding, they lock really well, they're really cheap for how good they are, and they cut incredibly fast. You can get them six inches long, which is basically worth, worthless, and you can get them like three feet long. I think it's called the katana, and it's really intimidating, and it's super fun to use, but also a little unwieldy. Um, so I say like an 18-inch long silky saw. Um, that is wonderful, and that's going to allow you to get through just about anything. Um, and if you don't have a chainsaw in the truck, that's a great way to clear the road if a, if a tree comes down. Um, an 18 inch long blade, you can get through an 18 inch wide tree. It's gonna take a second, but you can do it. Um, and that's a big tree to be able to clear. Yeah, so those are it impressive. absolutely is. And that's that's the saw that I carry is an 18 inch silky saw. Um, and it's, it's relatively lightweight, especially for its size. And I was just uh, clearing some roads uh, in Wyoming, getting ready for the Hunter Games a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, there's a tree down that we needed to cut. And somebody said, you want a chainsaw? And I was like, no, I'll just use this. And they thought I was just being a tough guy, but it's about efficiency. You know, I had that thing cut before I could have started that chainsaw. Totally. Um, they're, they're pretty amazing tools. Um, and the longer ones, you know, so the, the, the super wide one, the katana, um, is kind of ridiculous. Um, but if you need to cut a big thing, you can cut it so fast. Um, it's really amazing. I learned that doing trail work on the Appalachian Trail in college. Um, we, you know, due to some of the wilderness rules, um, we weren't allowed to use chainsaws in certain sections and we used crosscut saws, um, you know, American style crosscut saws. And they were absolutely spectacular to work with. Um, they were, the Forest Service taught us how to sharpen them um, and we kept them absolutely shaving sharp and they were incredibly effective yeah sharpening a crosscut saw is an incredible skill that not very many people have today yeah that was um that was super satisfying and i got to teach a little workshop at best made company in in new york when i was working there um in sharpening crosscut saws and it that i think that was kind of the beginning of the end for me because there i was in tribeca new york city um uh showing a bunch of investment bankers how to sharpen a crosscut saw and none of them knew what the hell I was talking about. And I don't think any of them cared. And I realized, you know what, this is, uh, this is maybe not the right fit. <laughs> uh, it, was, uh, it was illuminating. Um, but yeah, using a sharp saw is just a joy. And one of the best things about the um, Silky is that that blade is replaceable. It's an amazing quality blade. And as soon as it gets dull, um, you can just replace it. So that, that's uh, just a wonderful thing. So for axes, um, they're, you know, a good axe is kind of hard to find. Um, as with most technology, when everyone needed a thing, um, it was really good quality. When no one really needs the thing, it's harder to get the good quality. So around the turn of the century, the turn of the last century, there were so many amazing axes available um, in this country and dozens of makers. Um, now, of course, no one's really using them. Um, that much. So it's just less of a priority. Um, so good axes. Um, I, 
if you want a good hatchet, I would look for a spoon carving hatchet uh, because they tend to be made with better steel. Um, there are a couple good options there. Um, this guy who's named Robin Wood, preposterously, um, in the UK, he produces these really good quality um, spoon carving hatchets. And he has the heads forged in China, and then he has them ground in Sheffield, England, and fits the handles in England and ships them out from there. And I think, I think they're like 60 or 70 British pounds, so who knows what that is, but something like 100 bucks. Um, and they're really good quality. Um, the shape is right, the handle is right, everything's just right about it. Um, but Gransfors Brux is also a good source. Um, they forge axes in Sweden, um, and they've got these smaller hatchets. I think one's called the Wildlife Hatchet. There are a couple others. They make one just for hunters for taking animals apart, which is really nice. Um, and as long as you keep it really sharp, you can carve a spoon with just about any kind of hatchet. Um, and the key is sharpness. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, you don't have to necessarily overthink it. You know, you can pick up a, a Gerber hatchet or, you know, an S-wing or something. It, it, it's going to get the job done. It just might require a little bit more maintenance. It might not last as long. Uh, a hatchet is a really underutilized tool for hunters. And as you've seen, you know, there are times when that's the only cutting tool that I'll bring with me and I can skin with it. I can gut with it. Um, I can take an animal apart with, you know, pretty, pretty impressive speed and then have a myriad of other uses for it in camp because it's just, it's a really powerful tool. And, you know, we, you take the, the Gary Paulson book hatchet, right? There's, there's a reason that book wasn't called um, chainsaw or wasn't totally. called knife. Like it, if you're going to have one tool, that's a good one to have on you. Big time. Um, yeah, no question about it. And if you're going to have two tools, um, a, a good knife is, uh, is always going to be my choice. Um, actually, my buddy Will and I, um, when we got an elk up on, uh, up on um, a very, very steep ridge uh, last December, um, we, neither of us really know what we're doing. Um, we're both new and amateur hunters, and we were just kind of winging it the best we could. Um, and as we were taking this elk apart, we had thrown in a couple knives um, for each of us just to kind of see what was going to work. And if one got dull, we, we, we'd have a backup. The very best knife for the job ended up being my spoon carving knife, um, just a little Mora 126 spoon carving knife, because it's this small skinny blade. It's crazy sharp. Um, and it's this really comfortable and, um, and kind of easily manipulated handle. Um, so when we were skinning and gutting, we used that knife exclusively. Um, it even popped joints apart, although uh, I didn't do it quite as fast as the way that you did. Uh, <laughs> but I, I did my best and uh, yeah. it did work out eventually after a little bit of cussing. Hey, uh, as, as long as you're not packing hooves out, I'm happy. You know, yeah. whatever you have to do to make it happen. No hooves were packed, though I, I wish we had hooves when we were packing out. <laughs> pretty punishing after falling into a prickly pear for the fourth time at you know in pitch black that was yep. interesting. Well, um, the, the struggle makes the meat taste better truly truly does just had some of that burger last night um, glad, glad to hear it so uh yeah the, that more mora 126 um carving knife is really a remarkable knife and um, they they're so cheap for what they are i think they're 26 bucks they come with this terrible plastic sheath um, that works fine. I, I wouldn't trust it to wear on your hip all day, but um, it works fine. Um, you can get better sheaths for them. The steel lasts forever. The edge is incredible. Um, and it's this comfortable little wooden handle. You can carve a spoon with it. As long as you're keeping it really, really sharp, um, you could carve a spoon, skin an animal, finish the spoon, eat the animal. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. 
Well, um, and I'll share a sharpening technique that I learned from you that is a great way to save weight um, if you're backpack hunting, because you do need to sharpen a knife, you know, as you're working through an elk, especially if you're using it for other tasks. And uh, that's to use sandpaper to sharpen with. Um, you can bring a couple small pieces of sandpaper um, that are the size of a credit card and lay them over a flat surface and you can sharpen really well with it and it weighs nothing and it's basically free. Yep. Um, the sandpaper is a great way to do touch-ups and you said a credit card and I was just going to say, get your driver's license out and use that as your flat surface um, yep. on which to reference the, the knife. Um, you can also get little diamond hone, you know, basically credit cards that are super light and small and keep those in a little wallet in your pack. And that's a good way to do it. Um, I've got this folding diamond hone thing that I got for free when I was working at Best Made. You know, I think it's by DMT, um, which is a great um, company based out of Massachusetts, I think. Um, that make diamond, all kinds of diamond um, surfaces. Um, and it's a little bit heavier, but it does the job great. Um, and it's I'm able to touch up an ax with it or touch up a knife with it and it works just fine. It's better to take a little time to sharpen that knife than to work through uh, using a dull knife uh, because that's the best way to hurt yourself. You're forcing something with a dull knife and then you go too far and then you're cut. Yeah, and don't let it get dull. Like sh sharpen once, hone forever. So just take some time every once in a while to make sure that you're staying sharp and then it'll be much easier than if you let a knife get dull and kind of have to start over. Totally. Big time. Okay. Repairs. Talk me through it. So with repairs, again, look at what you think you might need to repair and, um, and then prepare accordingly. So I, I don't, I'm never going to worry too much about like a little rip in a garment um, in, unless it's a, I don't know, a, I guess a rain garment. Really the only time I'm going to sweat it is if it's a down garment um, or something that's going to leak out of filling. Um, if, the, if the garment itself is going to bleed, then you need to stop the bleeding. But if it's just going to have a little flapper, then I wouldn't sweat it. Um, so I always carry, of course, duct tape because that's the best way to stop the bleeding on a down garment. Um, and don't bother sewing. You're, you're going to do a terrible job and it's going to be less effective than duct tape. So just duct tape. That's the fastest and best. Um, if there is a tear on a garment um, and it's a problem, I'll probably take the time to sew it. Um, so I always carry a bunch of dental floss because it's really strong and you can treat it a little bit like artificial sinew in that you can um, split it in half for a finer thread or use it full thickness for a thicker thread. Um, and then an all-purpose needle. I don't know what kind of needle it is. Um, it's just a, I, I, and I, no one needs to know what kind of needle it is. Make sure the dental floss fits in the eye and make sure it's sharp and then you're good to go. That needle is going to work just fine. Don't get fussy about it. And again, those are a couple items that weigh next to nothing. Nothing and can really save the day. Um, where I have had to repair um, with sewing in the field is with um, bags because if a strap comes disconnected or if uh, suddenly a compression strap is, is not working or there's a big hole in the bottom of the bag, then you have a functionality problem. You know, if you have a little extra ventilation on a garment, you're probably going to be okay. Um, but if your bag can't hold stuff, that's a problem. Um, and then that's going to be the dental floss. And then I'll use a lock stitch hand sewn um, seam where you're pretty much tying a knot every time you make a seam. Um, every time you're, uh, instead of just sewing up and down and up and down, you're sewing with these little loops. And every time you make that loop, you pass the needle through and tie it tight. And that allows you to have this really ugly, like Frankenstein's monster look um, of a stitch, but that's actually going to be plenty strong to hold up the bottom of a backpack. 
And I'll, I'll carry a tool called a speedy stitcher that's used on canvas and leather and stuff like that a lot. Um, it's not something that I'm going to put in a backpack and take on a hunt like that, but it is something that I'll carry on my boat. Um, it is something that I'll carry in my pickup or on a four wheeler and whether it's, whether it's leather or anything lighter than that, it is fantastic at making those lock stitches and you can cruise right along and it comes with, you know, waxed thread, a big coarse thread um, spooled up in it. The learning curve on that thing is like two minutes, you know? So it, that's another great tool to have. The speedy stitcher is terrific. And the, the only downside of the speedy stitcher is that it's, um, that's a, it's basically a chain stitch, but, um, or it's a, it's kind of a lock stitch. That's like the, the one you get on a sewing machine. Um, so unless you're, you're doing a, a little extra work, if that, if that seam gets cut again, um, or if that seam ruptures, then the whole thing can run out. Um, and if you're just hand sewing, um, either with two needles or one needle, um, you can, you can really lock every single stitch. I um, see the difference now. Yeah. Um, if you're, if anyone's looking for a, a hilarious, um, viewing, um, there's this, uh, this British guy who made a human sewing machine. If you just look up human sewing machine, you'll find it. It's like in the in late eighties, early nineties, um, with a giant needle and, you know, four humans kind of showing how sewing machines actually work. Um, I've worked with sewing machines for a long time now, and this is the only thing that really explained it until then. I just thought it was magic. I still think it's magic. And I've, I've spent a lot of time on, uh, on the old Juki making stuff. And whenever that needle goes down into the table, magic, I don't understand how it's possible. It's incredible. Um, so with the needle and thread and dental floss really is a good thread. Um, but that waxed stuff you're talking about is also great and real artificial sinew, um, real artificial, but, um, artificial sinew that you buy for leather working. That's terrific stuff. Cause it's, ex- it's this extruded filament. Um, so it's super crazy strong. And again, you can kind of split it to see how wide you want that, um, fiber to be. That's really all you need for sewing. You're going to be able to get out of most scrapes with that. Um, I also always carry, of course, duct tape, but also electrical tape. And both of those I wind around my trekking pole. So it's just there and it's, I, I know exactly how much I have left and it's an easy thing to keep an eye on and keep topped up. Um, as I think we've all experienced with first aid kits and repair kits, um, you can get into a situation where you deplete a supply and then you never replete the supply. Um, then you're out there kind of up a creek. Um, so anytime you can keep an eye on those, it's best. Um, the last thing that I carry um, is uh, uh, quick fix buckles. And this is a thing that can really save your hide because if you if a buckle breaks and fast, fast text buckles or side release buckles, it's often the female end that breaks because you step on it and it just shatters that, um, that acetal on a stone. Yeah, it gets caught in a, in a pickup truck door all the time. Inevitable. It's the only thing that ever gets stuck in the door. It's like yep. someone's finger or the female fast text buckle that actually shatters. Um, so there are buckles that are made that, um, you can just kind of hammer the rest of that buckle off or even leave it on. And then there's a buckle that's made where the, the little slot that the webbing passes through has a slit in it at an angle and you can kind of wiggle it onto the webbing and then you've got a functional buckle. It's not as strong long-term, but it, it will absolutely get you out of the woods. And if the buckle that breaks is your hip belt buckle, that can be the difference between a really bad time and a really just okay time. Um, and, you, and you had a pack strap break with me on a hunt one time, and that turned into a pretty miserable experience for you. Sure did. 
um, which really was my own damn fault. I was uh, I was testing out this um, old Norwegian backpack, probably <laughs> the 30s, um, just to, you know, all these people hunted and hiked and mountaineered with these things. I was like, wow, how are they doing it? What, how'd it go? It didn't go well. And of course, <laughs> a, a leather strap blew out and that was that. Yeah. Um, and if, uh, if we hadn't been hustling it after some elk, I probably could have stopped and s- sewed that up. But um, really, ideally, you're doing your repairs at home. Um, yep. and, and that's, that's another good tip is, you know, of course, um, you know, you want to be prepared to repair stuff in the field, but ideally you're taking a little bit of time as you unpack to inventory your gear, keep an eye on what needs to, um, what kind of supplies need to be refilled and look at the pack, look at the, the jacket. Does it have a hole in it? Um, is there a, a piece that's coming undone on that pack? Um, generally soft goods don't fail all at once. They generally give you a warning. There's some fraying, there's a hole, there's something loose or wiggling. Um, something's creaking where it didn't creak before. Dig into it a little bit and figure it out. Um, and ideally if you're in the front country and there's a zipper that's not working right or something's just off kilter, if you're not comfortable sewing, look up a gear repair person and there's probably one in your area. Um, and if there isn't, there's a huge gear repair place in Seattle. I've, I've forgotten its name, but, um, you can ship your gear there and they'll fix it and they'll send it back. And it is really cheap um, for the quality of work that they do. Way better than, probably better than waiting on a warranty that might take six months. For um, sure. And definitely better than buying something brand new when you could just fix what you already have. Absolutely. I think the last plug I'll make for um, what to do with your soft goods is to alter them yourself. Um, if you feel like something doesn't work for you right, make it your own. Um, and that's a thing that you can do yourself if you're uh, able to sew a little bit or even just like pound a rivet where you feel like something isn't um, properly reinforced. Um, but also to rip stuff off. Um, that's very satisfying. Um, if you find that there are just too many pockets on the thing, too many straps on the thing, or the straps are all 12 feet long and they don't need to be, do it, change it, cut it. I find that people are often really reluctant to alter their belongings because it's like it's a store-bought thing. They feel, uh, feel uh, wrong cutting into it. Um, but you own it. You should change it, make it your own. Um, there's a pack that I have where the compression strap originally covered up the zipper access to the pack. Um, so anytime that pack was snugged up, you couldn't open up the little day pack portion. Um, so I ripped that seam apart and moved that compression strap to the other side of the zipper. Um, now that places more strain on the zipper technically, but it, it, it doesn't end up being a problem with the way that I did it. Um, so I really encourage you that if you get back and you feel like, you know, say it's a backpack, it's, it's generally working for you, but it's really inconvenient that the zipper is in this place or um, the strap is in this place. Try to change that yourself. And if you can't work with one of those gear repair people and they will change it um, very cheerfully. There's uh, there, there are more of those people than you think. And if anyone's forgotten, um, there is a thing called the yellow pages. So um, open it up and make a couple calls and you'll find someone to work with you. And I would take it at one step further. And that's that if you do find a way to improve this product, whatever it is, snap a picture with it and send it to the manufacturer. They're going to love you for that. And they're probably going to, you know, do something for you in the long run because everybody wants to improve. We're all looking to improve. Absolutely. And as someone who has received those emails on the manufacturing end, I love it. Um, I, I genuinely do because people come up with sometimes hilariously ridiculous solutions um, which they're so proud of, and that's great. And sometimes truly mind-bending solutions that I never would have thought of and that we absolutely incorporate into the next round. That's a, it's a very welcome thing. Yeah. 
Okay. The last thing I want to talk about today, Tom, um, what advice do you have for people who, who are new to hunting? Uh, you know, a lot of what people hear from on, on this podcast and, and from other, other places is, is advice from people who have been in the field for a long time. Um, but you're fairly new to elk hunting. For example, you know, you got your first elk with me a couple of years ago, um, which was an awesome experience, you know, for me. And, and I think for you as well, but what advice do you have for the people who are just getting started? Um, the, the, I'm still getting started for sure. Um, and what I just continually am reminding myself is um, to just ask questions and to seek people out who know a lot better than you um, because they know the answers to those questions. Um, that is, that's just been the very best thing to be able to have your ear and give you a call and say, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. What should I do? Or, um, you know, we've got tags for this unit. Uh, what, how should we approach it? Um, and to hear how you as an experienced hunter would walk through this area, think about the way the wind is moving, think about the way the terrain is oriented, um, to look at the topo and to be able to try to scout it, um, you know, just from the map. Um, that's mind bending to me. Um, and it, it's really been incredibly helpful and it's totally changed how I look at the woods and look at maps, um, both for hunting, but also just for being outside in general. Um, so that's, that's really pretty huge. Um, I think the other thing that changed, you know, I'm, a, I'm a kind of a map nut. So the other thing that really changed uh, my approach was just downloading and using Onyx. Um, and having a way to consistently mark trails, consistently mark um, waypoints, and to be able to really keep an eye on um, the terrain and then to be scouting out other potential options. Um, my buddy Will and I have been, we went out for blacktail last fall and um, just, you know, did, we got completely skunked, of course, because blacktail are so elusive and we're total novices. Um, but on our very last day, you know, Will looked at the map and he said, what about this area? You know, what do you think, what do you think is over here? Well, Oh, we've got nothing to lose. Let's go check it out. Um, we get over there and there's this super promising area that's got a lot of water. It's got a lot of deer sign. Um, of course, that was the last day of the hunt and that was that. But now for this season, we're really excited to get back to that area and check out that, um, that zone and see if we can approach it a couple different ways. Um, and lastly, to be patient. Um, and I think that's what requ still requires some adjustment on my end. Um, you know, a lot of things have a, a short learning curve and hunting is not one of them. Um, I think that I'll, I'll be learning about this till the day I croak because um, there's so many nuances and it just takes so much time. And some years you just aren't gonna get any tags um, that it's just gonna be a lifelong process. And that's great. I mean, how lucky are we to have this passion that can we can just keep chipping away at forever. That's never going to run out of interesting um, attributes. That's that's really a, a blessing and one to to see as something to be excited about for a very long time, rather than getting really furious that you know you didn't um, get a trophy elk this this year. You know, um, who cares? Um, take your time, be out in the woods, and ask a lot of questions. I think that's super solid advice, sir. And uh, that's honestly advice that I should probably take a little bit more often myself. <laughs> Uh, you get any Oregon tags this year, James? Zero, <sighs> zero. So um, there's some some clerical errors that uh, that need to be addressed because I didn't even get my landowner preference tags. Um, so I'll work on that. You know, I I spent an hour on hold yesterday. I'll I'll attack that again later. But yep. uh, 
Yeah. No, I, I've got some good hunts coming up this year that I'm excited about in other states. And, and uh, if nothing else, it'll free me up to help other people. And I enjoy that very much. Right on. Um, well, if you ever want to join us on our Stairmaster, I drew those same tags again this year. So awesome. I'm glad yeah. to hear it. I'm glad yeah. to hear it. Right on. All right, buddy. Well, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you. Um, and uh, we're going to link to a bunch of stuff in this pod- podcast description, folks. So if you're curious about any of the stuff that Tom was talking about, look down in the show notes and there will be links to this stuff. So thanks again, Tom. Appreciate you. And uh, good luck with your hunting season. Thank you, sir. Hope to see you soon, James. All right, bye. I live in an old cabin with bad to non-existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my woodpile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt, or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store and catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, Follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.